All right, Seven Mile Road, good morning. Hey, it has been a weird week in Houston, right? And your elders got together and prayed, and they decided that the most fitting way to end a really weird week in Houston was to have a really weird man with a really weird head in a really weird room to speak to you guys from God's word. This is their decision, not mine. Um, I'm here at the behest of your elders, um, but I am happy to be with you. Let me just tell you quickly who I am and why I'm here, and then we'll pray and dive into God's word together. My name is Kevin Cawley. I am the directional leader of Redeemer Fellowship in Kansas City. We have three congregations now in Kansas City. I moved my family here in 2007, 2008, um, when my family was just one little boy in a baby carrier, and now I have three kids. My wife Katie and I live couple blocks from a church building that we were given. Crazy story for another day. But um, I was supposed to be in Houston with you this weekend. I was going to give the opportunity to speak brothers to you at a men's retreat and then to share God's word with all of you this morning in a warm um, sanctuary free from broken pipes and snow and ice. But alas, the week has been chaotic, right? Lots of shifts, lots of um, up to the minute stuff was changing. So the last minute, Jeremiah and I decided that it'd be better for me to um, not come. Maybe we try to reschedule uh, my time with you, brothers, and as a way to serve him, um, I preach this way for you on a video this morning. So here I am. And uh, let me just tell you like why I'm here beyond just logistics. I love your pastor. I really do. I've had the chance to get to know Jeremiah over the past couple of years, and he's kind of been connected with people at Redeemer Fellowship for longer even than I've known him. And I love the way he loves you. I mean, I can genuinely say I love you guys just because I've heard your pastor talk about how much he loves you guys. And the thing I love about it is he doesn't talk about you with some kind of detached, um, you know, illusion as if everything's perfect among you and there are no problems. And he also doesn't complain about you guys. He talks biblically about you and joyfully about you. And he is zealously laboring in his own life to grow as a man and a follower of Jesus and a leader to better serve you. So the, the whole reason why I wanted to come to Houston in the first place was to bless your pastor, bless your elders, and look you guys in the eyes and tell you that your pastors love you and to encourage you to pray for them and um, encourage them. Um, and to get to look in, look in your eyes and see you. I'm not, I'm not going to do that right now. I'm looking at a picture of your backs from your website. I'm closest way I could be uh, to being in your sanctuary with you. But um, that's, that's who I am and why I'm here. Let's, um, let's pray and we'll get into God's word together. So Father, I love the fact that um, you are not limited or hindered by my distance at this moment or by the fact that um, these people don't know me and I don't know them. You're not limited at all by that. Your word is never restricted. And you always accomplish everything you set out to do. Father, you haven't spent a moment of your existence bored and you haven't spent a moment of your existence stressed. You are always perfectly accomplishing everything you set out to do. Even in power outages 
and sub-zero temperatures and storms. You're perfectly accomplishing everything you set out to do. But Father, I realize I'm speaking to brothers and sisters that have had their lives upended, maybe some of them homes messed up, plans bungled. In the midst of a season that's already stressful, tenuous, uncertain, in flux. So living God, I ask that you would tangibly, perceptibly place your hands on these people. You would encourage those who need to be encouraged. You would heal those who need to be healed. Spirit of God, for those who are broken, seven mile road right now, would you put them back together? For those that are confused, would you speak clarity into their hearts? God, for those that are cynical, would you show yourself to them? And would you help me now by your spirit to speak a word that's clear, that's faithful to your word, that's encouraging to these brothers and sisters? I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, hey, so you guys are asking hard questions about race and how do we respond as a church in the current moment that we inhabit, right? A moment that's characterized by confusion and hostility and animosity and competing ideologies and worldviews, even within the church. I loved hearing Jeremiah kind of open up this series for you guys and saying, hey, there's a lot of voices and a lot of hostile ones. The wise thing to do for us as the people of God is to ask, what is God saying to us as a people? And that's gonna require patience for you. It's going to require time. It's going to require humility because in a lot of places it's going to require you to admit, I don't know. There may be places where it's going to require you to say, hey, I've been taught things or handed things or given things that might require rebuilding in my life. And I was gripped. Jeremiah, I didn't even get a chance to tell you this, but I was gripped by your opening image that you gave all these brothers and sisters of speaking where there's space. It was not a reach that I had to get to your dinner table from mine. We got three kids. Quinn is 13. Lydia is 10. Naomi Jane is 7. And our tables are not calm places, let's say. The, the image of speaking where there's space, I thought was incredibly powerful. So powerful, in fact, that I've taken that image in my own day and in my own week and thinking about our life as a family and think like, okay, how do we also have to speak knowing that conversations take time? Like we can't, we can't live as a family in a world of hot takes. Sometimes conversations don't get finished. Oftentimes they're in process. And sometimes I don't possess all the requisite information to be even be able to participate in a conversation. It's like, oh man, what if we don't only speak where there's space, but we speak like conversations take time. And what if we spoke to people and with people like they lasted forever? Human beings last forever. 
What if we spoke to people that way? So that's, and that has been gripping to me. I know you guys talked about God's beautiful dream for humanity, and it wasn't a dream um, divided by and bifurcated by race, ethnicity, or other lines. It was one people oriented around the throne room of God. But you know from page two of your Bible that almost immediately humanity rejected that dream. We said, no, we would rather make meaning for ourselves. We would rather be the Lord of ourselves. And God, thank you very much for your provision, but no thank you. We're going to do our own thing. And from that second, everything in the human race has been falling apart. That was, as Cornelius Plantica calls it, a vandalism of shalom. God established perfect peace, the way everything was supposed to be, and humanity vandalized it and has continued to do so with more sophistication as each successive generation has moved on. So you guys talked about that. Then you talked about how Jesus speaks into our brokenness and animosity and talks to us about what it means to love our neighbor. What's it mean to live lives characterized by love and to know the one whose name is love? Well, this morning, my task, if I understand it correctly, is to help you understand from Ephesians what God's purpose for the church is. That God is doing a work to reconcile humanity to himself and to one another, and that he has decided that that take place in the church. You see, the church is not a building. We try to teach that kids that from their earliest of days. And so often as adults, we function like the church is the place that we go instead of the people that God by his spirit is making us. The church is not a building. The church is not merely 501c3. The church is not some kind of fraternity where we practice self-improvement or high-five people on their morality. The church is, as God says in the book of Ephesians, his temple. Church is a living building that he's putting together to function as the context for his reconciling work in Jesus. I think it was Calvin and other reformers picked up this language. The church is the theater of God's glory. The church is the canvas that God is painting his redemptive story on for all the world to see and to be invited into to celebrate the goodness of his grace. So what I want to do for you this morning is I want to lay down a quick theological foundation, just a a fast fly through of Ephesians the quickest I can. And then from that, I want to take chapter 4, verses 1 to 16, and just make three exhortations for you guys as a church family. It's not going to be like um, a deep exposition of the passages of Scripture. I want to lay the foundation, and I want to stand on it. And from that point of standing, I want to exhort you as a church, even though I don't know you individually, I want to exhort you as a man who loves your pastor and loves you because your pastor loves you, and a man who wants to see you fully formed into all the purposes and plans God has for you as a church. I want to make some exhortations for you. So that's what I'm going to do. Jeremiah told me that I have three hours that I get to do that. So we'll give you guys a couple of bathroom breaks or something else. I'm teasing. Kind of. And uh, we'll get through this. All right. 
Ephesians chapter 1. Open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1. I, I want to just lay down three things by way of foundation and then three things by way of exhortation. And hopefully I'll do this quickly. I think you guys preach shorter sermons than we do in Kansas City. I'm a little bit nervous about that, to tell you the truth. Okay, foundation point number one. Look at Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 to 10. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 to 10. Paul says, in him, meaning Jesus, in Jesus. I've gone through Ephesians in my Bible and highlighted with yellow anytime Paul's referring to Jesus, whether explicitly or with a pronoun. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the redemption through his blood. Sorry, I, I read the double line. According to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Circle that word mystery. Right? This isn't something that was difficult to figure out and then God gave us a, a, a boast or a boost. This was something that was impossible to figure out unless God miraculously disclosed it. And this mystery, which God had kept hidden until the fullness of times, was this. To unite all things, verse 10, in him. Things in heaven and things on earth. Paul's saying that God's eternal purpose was to take everything in the universe that had been vandalized, broken, decayed, had gotten sick since Genesis 3, take all those things and put them back together under Jesus, whether reconciled in him through his life, death, and resurrection, or judged underneath his just glory, that everything would be brought together under Jesus. So that Paul can say in Colossians, Christ is everything. This is the central purpose of God in the history of humanity. Paul says everything gets put back together in Jesus. That's point number one, that God's purpose is to unite all things, reconcile all things, renew all things, put everything together under the glorious rule and reign of the resurrected Messiah, Jesus. It was God's plan. So in chapter 2, he unpacks that, right? And talks about the breaking down of hostility, the destruction of dividing walls, taking people that had no history and had no heritage and had no family and bringing them back together so that he creates in Jesus one new man. So, so this isn't about identity politics. What, what Paul says is in Jesus, God is renewing the human race. He's actually transforming humanity to be in line with his original purposes. In Jesus, there is a new humanity, Paul says in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, verses 7 to 10, Paul, 7 to 11, Paul tells us what God's eternal purpose was to do with that reconciling truth of Jesus. Read it with me. This is Ephesians chapter 3, verse 7. Paul says, Of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone, right, Jew and Gentile, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that 
through the church. Do you see that? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he's realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul says the church is the eternal purpose of God. Now, I grew up in the church. My uncle was my pastor. My mom played the piano in our church. But I also remember from my youngest of days, deciding that Christianity was all about politics and morality, and I was interested in neither. Already told you I'm the weird guy at the end of your weird week. I remember being a little boy and not aspiring to be a firefighter or a baseball player or president. My aspirations from my youngest memories are like, I want to be a roadie in a rock band. I want to wear black jeans and black shirts and have pliers on my belt and smoke cigarettes and be a bad guy. That was, my, that was my ambition as a child. Whether or not I'll realize that ambition in my life yet to be seen, but that was my desire. And Christianity was opposed to that. It was about morality and politics wanted nothing to do with it. And I remember when I was 16, I came to Kansas City, actually. And I, I know no other way to say it than I met the living God. And I realized that Christianity wasn't about politics and morality, but Christianity was about a person who desired to manifest his presence among a people. And this person was powerful beyond anything I could have ever comprehended. And I remember being like, my conversion is not very far from me. I regularly remember the night that God took all my purposes and all my plans for me and laid them before the revelation of who he was and invited me to consider who I really was in light of him. And it wasn't very long after that time that as a regenerate person, the first time as a Christian, like grew up in the church, I heard all the Bible lessons. I'd seen the flannel graphs. I know you guys got flannel graphs in Houston. I don't know if you have them at Seven Mile Road, but if you grew up in the church in Houston, you had flannel graphs. I'd grown up with all that stuff, but I'd never read with the eyes of faith. I'd never heard the word of God with the ears of faith. And I remember shortly after my conversion, as a Christian, hearing Ephesians 3 and understanding, wait a minute, the church isn't just the place that I have to be on time or I'll be in trouble with my mom. The church is the household of God, one new family, living stones, a temple. God's purpose never was a building, but it was to create a living temple of people. And when I came to this place in chapter 3 where, where Paul says that the church was according to the eternal purposes of God, for me it was, as a teenage boy, a full stop. Everything got redrawn for me around that truth. I was like, wait a minute, the church, the church is the, the stage upon which God is enacting his reconciling drama for all the world to see. This is why he's doing it in a place. The place is the church. I think that's what 
That's what Jeremiah longs for you to understand. That's what I long for you to understand. That's what God longs for you to understand. Seven Mile Road as a local church is not just a new thing in Houston or like a 501c3 that you donate to to get tax breaks. It is a local manifestation of God's eternal purposes so that through a visible entity, he could say, hey, see right there? Look at those people. Look at how I'm reconciling them to myself and forcing them to be reconciled to one another. This is what God is doing in a place. The computer went dead for a second. I was terrified that I lost you. I mean, like, hey, that that is universe reorganizing. And that changes, parents, how you talk to your kids about what Seven Mile Road is. Hey, and if you're new to Christianity, or if you came with a friend and you're trying to figure out maybe even like what your life means in the midst of tons of turmoil and confusion and transition in our world, the church is not a club. Church is a canvas, God says. It's a canvas upon which he's painting the glorious reconciling work of Jesus. That's theological foundation point number two. And third, quickly, I just want you to see, look at Paul's prayer in verses 14 to 19 of Ephesians chapter 3. In this prayer, Paul makes it clear that God's resources are infinite and unlimited and are moving towards you. He's actually praying that God would dispatch all his resources towards you so that God could strengthen you. God could bring his resources and deposit them within you to help you comprehend the fullness and magnitude and glory of all that he is. How astonishing is it that after laying out the foundation of what God purposed in Jesus, what God's doing among divided peoples, through Jesus and what God has appointed for the church to be the context in which divided peoples get restored to God, then he says, hey, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you that you'll understand and that God will strengthen you and increase your capacity to comprehend the magnitude of his love for you. Hey, by the way, brothers, parenthesis, that's what I wanted to talk about with you this weekend. It's like, how do we see God strengthen us in the places where there's gaps in our own experience to grow to an embodied understanding of, appreciation of, communion with the God whose name is love? All the reconciling work God is doing, Paul says, he's doing it in the church. God's purpose from the beginning of creation was to create a people and a place that he could dwell with them. And what's bananas is he says, hey, I'm doing that through Jesus. I'm doing that in the church. Now, Paul says, in light of all that, here's the way I want you to live, right? Chapters 1 to 3 of Ephesians are theological foundation. Chapters 4 to 6 of Ephesians are 
admonition, exhortation, challenge. In light of this identity that God has forged for you in Christ, therefore, here's how you are to live. When we preached this at Redeemer in the early days, we talked about gospel identity and gospel practice, or kingdom calling and kingdom ethics. So Paul shifts from this foundation in chapter 1 to 3 to these uh, exhortations in chapter 4. Look at how he begins chapter 4. Therefore, a prisoner for the Lord. Hey, which by the way, it's important for you to realize with that like um, appellation Paul gives himself. Hey, what he's talking about is risky. For you to even talk about What does God say to us about division, hostility, identity politics, racial animosity in our world? Like for you to even say, hey, what does God say to us about that? You need to realize like the guy that's articulating this for you got put in prison for what he said. Like uh, the word of God is powerful. It raises the dead. But despite whatever illusions we might have had in America, that we have religious freedom, et cetera, et cetera, I I don't think we should miss the fact that Paul says, hey, I'm in jail for this, by the way. I'm in jail for this. Therefore, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Paul says, I've outlined for you who God makes you in Christ Jesus. Therefore, by his grace, by the empowering and dwelling presence of his spirit, here's how I want you to live. And that's, you know, all of chapters four to six. So we have sexual ethics, we have marital dynamics, we have issues with parents and children, we have economic issues within the day. But I, I just want to make to you three quick exhortations from these first 16 verses of chapter four. And I'm not even going to exposit them fully. I just want to lay them on the table and invite you to consider them I want to invite you to ingest them. Don't just like read them and interact with them as if this is a word you can take or leave, but actually eat the words, metabolize them, and then ask God what it would look like for them to bear fruit and be embodied in your life. Three exhortations for you. If you're a church that's laboring to ask, what does God say to us about racial division? What does God say to us about racial reconciliation? Then I'll let you reckon with what he says about his dream for humanity and how he puts together the dream we've broken and reassembles it in Jesus. I'll let you guys navigate that, but but I'll give you encouragements or exhortations of what you need to embody as you do that. And these three encouragements I want to offer you are simply this. Number one, I want to invite you to practice a kingdom decorum. I want to invite you to celebrate, celebrate the diversity of gifts that God's given you. And then thirdly, I want you to understand and acknowledge the incompleteness of your development. So let's talk quickly about decorum, diversity, and development. Okay, number one, decorum. Look with me at Ephesians 4.1. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Look at verse 2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Note these words. Humility. Gentleness. Patience. Bearing with one another. Eager. My kids are 
way smarter than I am, way smarter than I am. And they are voracious readers. So it's a game for me to come up with words that will challenge their vocabulary and delight their intellects, even sometimes galvanizing us together as a family. So a word we use regularly as the Collies in Kansas City is, we talk about decorum, <laughs> proper decorum. And decorum is just acceptable behavior or expected behavior in light of realities and circumstances. So if we're going to a party at the park, we talk about what's proper decorum for the park. If we're going to someone's graduation ceremony or a wedding or a funeral, what's proper decorum for those things? If we're inviting guests over to have dinner at our home, what's proper decorum there? What Paul does here is he outlines for us kingdom decorum that's applicable in every situation we're in, but especially as we embrace the eternal purposes of God accomplished for us in Jesus being worked out in the church, Paul says, hey, have a proper kingdom decorum in light of who you are in Jesus and in light of what God's making you for all the world to see in the church. And he says, hey, do this with humility. I don't know if you think about this, but humility is not a popular concept in our modern world. And it was hated in the ancient world. No one aspired to be humble. Humility existed for slaves and for people in untouchable castes. Now, what really flipped the script on the ancient world is when God started to describe himself as humble in the Old Testament. And so we see Paul admonishing the people of God to act like God here, to be humble. And humility, by the way, doesn't mean we kick rocks and say, oh, shucks, I'm a terrible person. Humility is rightly seeing yourself, rightly understanding who you are, rightly understanding whose you are, rightly understanding where you are, rightly understanding what time it is, and then marshalling all your energy, all your resources, not to make others see how great you are, but to let others see how God sees them. That's humility. You can be strong and humble. You can be gifted and humble. You can be inordinately talented and humble. Humility requires that you take all that God's given you and use it so that others can see how great he is and how much he loves them. What if that, what if that shaped your interaction together as a church? Humility, gentleness. Now, you don't know me at all, but I'm, I'm not naturally given to gentleness. Something I'm really praying God will birth in me, and it's something that I'm pleading with God to birth in the church uniquely in this moment in history. Because our world is characterized by the opposite of gentleness. Quick-tempered, hostile, aggressive, instead of being like gentle. And hey, by the way, I long to see gender redeemed in the life of the church. And gentleness is not a feminine quality or a masculine quality. You can see glorious feminine gentleness 
and glorious masculine gentleness. And how amazing would it be if the people of God would manifest the reconciling power of God in the way they dealt with one another with gentleness. I don't know if this is a meaningful way to say it or a helpful way to say it, but if I'm still holding on, Jeremiah, to your words of speak where there's space, I'm saying like, hey, how do we learn how to speak and understand that takes time? How do we learn how to speak and understand that people last forever? If conversations take time and people last forever, that could give me a particular disposition with which to engage people in conversation, particularly people that disagree with me or annoy me or people that we think um, are embracing views that are detrimental or even reprehensible in our current moment. What would it look like in your church? What would it look like at your home, at your dinner table, with your friends in your house churches, if you were gentle with one another? And by the way, that doesn't mean you renounce truth. It just means you treat people like they last forever, with patience. What's celebrated in our current cultural milieu is snap judgment and hot takes. But the opposite of judgment, I think, is curiosity. Judgment presumes that you're God and you know everything. Curiosity presumes that you're not and you have tons to learn. I love so many of us have heard um, Larry King's famous statement now in the wake of his death that he never learned a single thing while he was talking. He learned while he was listening. And I wonder what it would look like with uh, for us with humility, gentleness, and patience to not operate from the presumption that we're right, but to operate from the presumption that we have more to learn from another person, we have more to listen to another person, and in patience, and check this out, he moves from bearing with one another in love, which you might go, okay, it's a burden I bear, to being eager to do something. He says, hey, don't just like do this with a scowl as if it's some kind of burden God's placed on you. Be eager to maintain, right? Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. I want us to be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. I want us to learn to labor, to be able to reflect back to someone what they've said and what they think with their um, emotional tone as well. So we reflect back to them both the content of what they say and the tone of what they say, whether we agree with them or not. I wonder how much grace could be infused into our conversations if we just started learning to say things like this. Hey, help me see if I'm understanding you correctly. And labor to reflect back to people what they've said in their tone and in their content. And to presume... I have something to learn. I'm not God, so I don't need to stand in judgment over a person. I can disagree with somebody. Like, what, what would this kind of decorum look like in your church? What would this kind of decorum look like outside your church? And how could Houston be invited to the reconciling power of Jesus through people practicing this kind of kingdom decorum. If you guys are laboring to see people reconciled 
and renewal move through Houston socially, spiritually, and culturally, which I would imagine you are. How can your decorum, based on the reality of what God's doing for us in Jesus, in the church, how could your decorum be an evangelistic tool and, by the way, a formative gift you give to others around you? Wish I had time to preach longer on that, and I wish I could look into your eyeballs at that moment as I say that. Man, that is my heart for you, and that is not where people are. We love hot takes, and we love canceling people. Paul says, bear with, bear with them. Be eager to maintain unity. Right? It's not just false unity. It's unity precipitated by and, and bound within the Spirit of God. So that's exhortation number one. I want to see Seven Mile Road, even though I've never seen you guys. I want to see you guys grow in the manifestation of a kingdom decorum in light of who God is for you in Jesus, in light of what he's doing in the church, grow in kingdom decorum. Secondly, I want you to understand and celebrate and excel in the diversity of giftings God has given your body already, even as you long for a diversity of persons reflective of the city God's put you in to be in your church in the future, right? There's a diversity that's anticipatory for you. It's something that you long for. It's something that you're striving for. You want to see all the peoples of Houston gathered around the throne of Jesus together with you, not so you can have some kind of external thing to brag on, but first and foremost, because you'll get to see more of Jesus. If, if you have different people from different backgrounds, with different heritages, with different stories, with different perspectives gathered together with you, you will get to apprehend the glory of Christ in a way that you couldn't on your own. I get that. I'm with you. I'm praying that for you. That's a diversity you're longing for and striving for. But what Paul says here is, hey, in that pathway, know that there's a diversity you already have. God has already given you diverse giftings and diverse dispositions of people so that your church could be built up now. You know, I wonder how often we miss the present gifts of God longing for the future realizations of his kingdom in our midst, which like I said, man, I'm with you. I celebrate that. But, but Paul says, hey, there's one body, one spirit. We, we get these things in the scriptures all the time of the one and the many, the unity and the diversity. He says there's one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. What a profound declaration of the oneness of the triune God and his supremacy over everything. But, Paul says in verse 7, but grace was given to each of us according to Christ's gift. Hey man, that is a brain melter. Paul says we're one people, one body. There's oneness about us. But within that oneness, God's given us different gifts. And and different measures of gifting that we don't have to argue about of why why Jesus give him that and why Jesus give her that. No, Paul says, hey, God's given us different measures of gifts and, and we need to use them and receive them 
understanding that God has given, look with me at verse 11 of Ephesians 4. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Paul says, hey, God has given you now a diversity of giftings in accordance with the measure of Christ's gift for the building up of the body now. And he doesn't say he's given you staff and lay people. doesn't say he's given you elders and everybody else. So it's not like you need something at Seven Mile Road that you need to staff up for or you need to raise money for. God's saying, hey, look around you. Look around you. He is given now. Seven Mile Road lacks nothing now to accomplish God's purposes for you now. He's given different gifts. I'd love to see you guys take some time to even unpack how he desires these gifts to function in your body. Apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for the building up of the body. That, that's exhortation number two. And think about this, man, like we don't do diversity well. We just don't. Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 14 where Paul says, hey, there's something about us where I'm inclined to look at you and say, I'm not like you, therefore I don't matter. Or there's something about us in, in, in a diverse context and inclined to say, you don't look like me, therefore you don't matter. But Paul says, hey, God's given us a diversity of gifts to build up the body. That, that's his goal. So I, I, I want you to practice kingdom decorum. I want you to celebrate and explore the diversity you have now. Then thirdly and finally, I'll get out of your way as quick as I can. I, I want you to understand that your development is not complete. <laughs> this, this passage is filled with language of telling us, hey, God's given us these things until we reach full maturity. Like while we're children, there's a developmental path that's named here. And what Paul's saying is, hey, we haven't, we haven't fully gone our way um, until we reach these things, which I think should be um, an unbelievable point of freedom and joy and hope for you. If you're speaking where there's space, if you're speaking like things take time, if you're speaking like people last forever, you can also speak to one another realizing that you haven't arrived yet. God's not finished with you yet. It's something you can pray into something you can labor for. We talk a lot here in Kansas City about um, the developmental spiritual pathway of infant, child, adolescent, mature adult. And you, you can labor for that and you can see God accomplish that in your body and you can remember that God's not finished with you and you're not finished. And even when you attain mature adulthood, spiritually speaking, we're still not complete until we see Jesus face to face. Hey, in light of what God's doing to put fragmented things back together through Jesus in the church. Oh, friends, I want to see you. I want to see you manifest the glory of God in the way you treat one another. I want to see you manifest the glory of God in the way you appreciate one another, what he's given you. I want to see you manifest the glory of God in the way you wait for one another and speak the truth to yourselves. And hey, lest I just sign off here, I wanna cap this with one more theological foundation point. 
We talked about those three in the beginning, but turn your Bibles to Ephesians 6 and look at verse 12. Paul says in Ephesians 6, 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let me just say that like, we have real enemies that desire our destruction. We have a real enemy that desires us to be a contentious church, a church filled with conflict, a church that rejects humility, a church that rejects gentleness, a church that delights in hot takes, not in patience, a church that delights in judgment, not bearing with one another, a, a, a church that delights in um, eagerness to break instead of eagerness to maintain unity. We have a real enemy. Like what we're doing in the context of walking in the ways of Jesus and seeing the reconciling power of Jesus manifested among us is not merely obedience to God, though it is. It's also spiritual warfare. Like you have a real enemy that desires your demise. And in the midst of that, brothers and sisters, our only hope is Jesus himself. Like I don't, I don't know you guys and you don't know me. And I'm not even certain of the makeup of who's listening to me this morning. Some of you that have walked with Jesus for a couple of decades, and some of you that are literally in the wake of a global pandemic and massive shifts in our society in this moment, you're stepping in and asking questions about Christianity, maybe for the first time in your life. Wherever you are on that spectrum or any point in between or any point eccentric to that spectrum, your only hope today is Jesus. Paul begins his letter to the church at Rome by saying, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God unto salvation. And he closes his letter to the church at Rome by saying that the gospel of Jesus is able to make you strong. So whether you're laboring to find hope in a world where you've previously been dead to the things of God, or grow in the things of God as one who's leading in your church now, your hope is Jesus. What he offers you in his life, his death, his resurrection, and the glorious truth that the only thing you bring to the table in terms of exchange with Jesus is your need. Hey, it's a seven mile road. Can, in whatever you're laboring to do, and in all that you're laboring to do, my earnest desire for you is that you hear the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of the kingdom of God, that whoever you are, wherever you are, your hope in this moment and forever is God sent his son into your world and lived the life you should have lived and died the death you deserve to die and rose victorious over the grave to offer you a righteousness that you could not secure or accomplish on your own. And I cannot wait for the day that I get to come celebrate God's goodness with you in person. Let me pray for you now. Living God, I pray that as Houston thaws out and dries out and people get their houses cleaned up, I pray that you would meet these people. And I pray that even in these unique moments of uh, weather disasters, you would let this church 
practice kingdom decorum. Celebrate the diversity of gifts they already have and acknowledge the developmental process that they have not completed yet. And would Houston see the reconciling power of Jesus the Messiah in the way they walk together in his ways. So bless them and keep them, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, thanks for your time. Blessings, you guys. I look forward to being with you and meeting you someday. Bye-bye.